Detective novelists have always been loyal to their sleuths. Some, like Gladys Mitchell, created a character and devotedly returned to them again and again. Other authors, like Dorothy L. Sayers, had a main detective character, in her case, Lord Peter Whimsey, but also worked with at least one other secondary sleuth, who appeared more infrequently, like my beloved Montague Egg. In both scenarios, both writer and reader could enjoy the comfort of returning to a familiar detective in book after book. The characters could develop across multiple stories, maturing through their lives and giving fans a reason to pick up the book beyond just the pleasure of a new puzzle. Never forget how angry everyone got when Arthur Conan Doyle decided that he was fed up of writing about Sherlock Holmes and threw him over a cliff. Readers like what they know. There are times, though, when a writer might conceive of a character who fits perfectly in one plot, but who can't reasonably be inserted into other situations. They're more unusual, these one-off detectives, but there is an author who created them fairly regularly, even though she is best known for her recurring characters. Today, we're going to meet Agatha Christie's competent women. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. It's in Agatha Christie's second published novel, The Secret Adversary from 1922, that we get our first glimpse of a competent woman. Miss Prudence Cowley has spent the First World War in a blizzard of activity, serving successively as a hospital kitchen skivvy, a ward maid, a military driver and a worker in a government office. I had intended to become a land girl, a postwoman and a bus conductress by way of rounding off my career, but the armistice intervened, she says in the first chapter. Despite the circumstances, she's enjoyed herself immensely. Unfortunately, the end of the war has brought waves of returning soldiers requiring their jobs back, making even the most efficient of young women surplus to requirements again. Only a healthy fear of having to return to the vicarage where she grew up, where skirts must be worn long, cigarettes are banned, and there is plenty of unpaid drudgery awaiting her, has enabled Prudence to survive in London on no income. This character, who is also known as Tuppence Beresford, does recur in three more novels and a short story collection, spread out across Agatha Christie's long career, so she isn't completely the type that we're seeking. Yet in this first appearance alone, she is an excellent blueprint for the one-off competent women characters that are peppered through the rest of Christie's fiction. Tuppence is bursting with energy and talent, but circumstances aren't allowing her to exercise her abilities. She's completely broke too, and is thus readily talked into pursuing amateur detective work as a means of seeking her fortune. This is vital. These characters usually need some kind of seismic life change or a moment of adversity to impel them to turn their talents towards mystery solving. A desire for adventure, which Tuppence also has in spades, is a common attribute too. These competent women want more than the domestic toil or humdrum conventionality that seem to be their lot. Together with that comes a certain desperation, combined with fearlessness. Tuppence would risk pretty much anything to avoid becoming a spinster skivvy back at her parents' vicarage. The moment when all of these factors come together, i.e. when Tuppence turns to her childhood friend in a crowded tea shop and says, Tommy, let's be adventurers, isn't just an exciting evolution of a character. 
It's also the kickstart to a plot, and I think perhaps the reason why most of Christie's competent women were one-book wonders. Even Tuppence ages substantially between each of her appearances in fiction, because I think it's just too implausible for even a 1920s detective author to pull off this kind of trick book after book. Besides, I think a big part of the appeal of these characters for Christie was how ephemeral they were. They were free of the pesky details that plagued her with her recurring sleuths. I mean, how old is Hercule Poirot by the end? 120? I think these one-off women have a lot of the attraction of Mary Poppins about them. They turn up, have an adventure, sort everything out, and then disappear over the horizon at the end of the story. Christie's first full-blown competent woman, by my definition, is Anne Bedingfield from 1924's The Man in the Brown Suit. She is the central protagonist, and also the main narrator of a story that is as much a thriller as it is a detective story, really. If it weren't for Anne's constant efforts to uncover the truth behind the mad adventures she's having, we might not think of this book as a whodunit at all. She starts out with a dreary domestic life, as a kind of housekeeper slash secretary slash general factotum for her father, who is, quote, one of England's greatest living authorities on primitive man. But apparently he can't do things like remember to pay the grocer or type his own manuscripts. Anne runs her father's life with ease, but is very bored with her lot in life. She says early on, I yearned for adventure, for love, for romance, and I seemed condemned to an existence of drab utility. Having already met Tuppence, I'm sure you can see how Anne is a competent woman with an adventurous spirit and an inquiring mind, constructed along the same lines. After her father dies, Anne is liberated from housekeeping and also inherits an amount of money that her solicitor thinks is completely insufficient for a woman to live on, but which Anne is excited by because it's the most she's ever had. This is the spur that begins the plot. Anne goes to London, and at the end of the platform at Hyde Park Corner Tube Station, She sees a man fall to his death, apparently after recognising someone behind him. She follows the doctor who examined the body out of the station and picks up a piece of paper he dropped, which seems to be in some sort of code. Her suspicions about this death send her on a madcap journey to South Africa and then Zimbabwe, during which she almost gets killed several times before eventually unmasking the villain. At the end of chapter two, Anne permits herself a moment of self-mockery imagining what title a sensationalist newspaper would give her account of these events. Anna the Adventuress would be sufficiently silly, she decides, before declaring that girls are foolish things. Much to Agatha Christie's own amusement, when the London Evening News did serialise the novel, they changed the title to Anna the Adventuress, seemingly completely missing the element of irony with which Anne utters that phrase. But given that the paper was paying £500 for the rights, which according to the National Archives currency converter would be about £20,000 in today's money, Christie didn't make a fuss. In fact, she bought her first car with the money and rejoiced over the independence it gave her. It's Anne Bedingfield's competence that stops this novel from descending completely into farce. Although she does walk into her fair share of traps, it's always her quick thinking and sensible attitude that gets her out of them again. Much of her adventures are based on the world tour that Agatha Christie undertook with her then-husband Archie in 1922. She, like Anne, bought too many souvenirs, including an unwieldy giraffe. 
It's easy to imagine that there's an element of wish fulfillment in Anne Bedingfield's character. She has no family, no domestic ties, no husband who spends too much time playing golf. She can travel the world and give her talents free reign, something that perhaps Christy envied. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. For Emily Trefusis, the competent woman at the heart of Agatha Christie's 1931 novel, The Sitterford Mystery, what tips her over into the risky occupation of sleuthing is rather more than just a desire for adventure. We meet her at the point in the story when her fiancé is being detained by the police as a very likely suspect in his uncle's murder. Emily reassures him as he's taken away that he can leave it all to her and proceeds to turn detective in order to prove that her Jim couldn't have done the crime. Because Emily isn't the narrator of the story, we get another character's description of her when she first enters. Inspector Narricott gives a very able summary of her as a competent woman. She was, he says, a very exceptional kind of young woman. She was not strikingly beautiful, but she had a face which was arresting and unusual, a face that having once seen you could not forget. There was about her an atmosphere of common sense, savoir-faire, invincible determination, and a most tantalising fascination. Chapter 11 of the Sitterford Mystery is called Emily Sets to Work, but that could really be the title of the whole book. She travels to the scene of the crime, recruits a journalist as a sidekick, interviews witnesses, checks alibis, and generally bustles about trying to find out who the murderer is, having reasoned that uncovering the real culprit is the best way of getting her fiancé off the hook. In the politest, most appropriate way, she won't take no for an answer. As her assistant Mr Enderby observes, Emily had the kind of personality that soars triumphantly over all obstacles. Emily is a very satisfying character to read. 
I think of her as the embodiment of how all readers want to feel during a whodunit. She's clearly smart and very capable, but even she doesn't tumble to the solution of the mystery until near the end of the book. There's also a decent amount of graft involved in her deductions. She goes places and speaks to people and thinks hard. The right answer doesn't just come to her out of nowhere. As with Tuppence and Anne before her, there is a romantic element to the way Emily's character operates in the novel. Of course she's motivated to get involved in the case at all because of her fiancé, but then the sidekick she recruits also seems to develop feelings for her, so she has to maintain the delicate balance of keeping him on side, but also not doing anything that she might regret later, which adds interest to her exploits for the reader. I think the constant presence of at least one love interest is another reason why so few of these competent women get a second outing. Christy does like to marry them off where she possibly can. Of course, Tuppence is the exception, because her husband then appears in the subsequent stories alongside her. Much to my regret, we never hear any more of Emily Trefusis after she solves the Sitterford mystery. But her forthright intelligence and practical acumen place her firmly among a distinguished lineage of such women, a character who leaves us wanting more. Before I get on to the last of the trio of competent women that I wanted to talk about in detail today, let's take a moment to consider the honourable mentions. Competent women who certainly belong in this category, but who for a variety of reasons have never quite made it to the front rank in my mind. There's Bundle Brent from The Secret of Chimneys, who does get a tuppence-like recurrence in The Seven Dials Mystery. Catherine Gray in The Mystery of the Blue Train has the potential to conduct the investigation herself, in the manner of Emily Trefusis, but is somewhat stymied by the fact that Christie also put Poirot in this book, and he then dominates the whole affair. There's also Lady Frances Derwent in Why Didn't They Ask Evans, who I like a lot but is really part of a sleuthing double act with Bobby Jones. Those books are all from the 1920s and 30s, but there are two instances of competent women from much later on in Christie's career. Victoria Jones in 1951's They Came to Baghdad, and Lucy Islesbarrow in 1957's 450 from Paddington. The former is one of the weaker novels, in my opinion, but the latter is an absolute triumph to my mind. In fact, I've said I like it so much that during the Q&A after my live show in Dublin last week, a listener expressed surprise that I didn't name it as my favourite ever detective novel. It is up there for sure, but that particular night, I was feeling more inclined towards Strong Poison, in case you were curious. Although Lucy Alsbarrow has a lot to do with why this book works as well as it does, there are two other elements that make it stand out. One is the sheer originality of Christie's murder setup. As indicated by the title, someone travelling on that particular train witnesses a murder during the few seconds that her carriage is running alongside a train on a different line, but is then powerless to investigate further as the two tracks diverge. The second factor is something that Christie and other novelists use many times but which never fails to provide interesting, complicating elements to a plot. The large, dysfunctional family warped by a matter of inheritance. The witness to the murder is on her way to visit Miss Marple when she sees a woman being strangled on the other train. Miss Marple immediately sees the possibilities of a train as a venue for a crime, as long as the body disposal had been planned beforehand. But regretfully, she's too old to go poking about on railway embankments herself. This is why, early on, she enlists the help of Lucy Arsborough, 
who she'd got to know when her nephew hired her to look after Miss Marple's house during a bout of illness. Lucy is described as possessing, quote, in addition to scholarly brilliance, a core of good sound common sense. Despite having taken a first in mathematics at Oxford, Christie says, Lucy prefers to work as a kind of freelance short-term domestic help and has cultivated a stellar reputation for her services. She never wants for clients or for money and can pick and choose her jobs as they interest her. I imagine her as a bit like a cross between Nanny McPhee and Bobby from Queer Eye. She'll turn up for a bit, teach you some lessons you'll never forget, and then leave your house looking unrecognisably clean and organised. I don't know whether such a job ever actually existed, but Lucy is certainly Christie's imagined solution to the change in the social order after the Second World War. When domestic help was in short supply, people began to relocate much more readily, and the wealthy who ran stately homes were going bankrupt. She might be nearly 30 years on from Emily Trefusis, but Lucy Arlesborough has the same sense of adventure. It's lovely to meet you again. How is Raymond? You know my nephew, footloose and fancy free. <laughs> like you, Lucy. <laughs> and long may it be so. I do what I do, I see who I see, I meet who I meet, and it's glorious. <laughs> it's lovely to meet you again, but... Of course. Now... I couldn't pay nearly your normal rate, but Raymond said he'd help, and everything I know about you convinces me you'll take it on. You want to engage me? Yes. Would you like an adventure? (laughs) Possibly. It's quite a challenge. Very possibly. I want you to find a body. She takes up that challenge with a vim and in between scouring scrubland for traces of a corpse, she scrubs and cooks her way into the hearts of her new employers. There are lots of brilliant descriptions of the food she makes, from crispy Yorkshire puddings to an unfortunate yet delicious-sounding curry. And I also very much enjoy her rationalisation for doing what she does. Cooking satisfies my creative instincts, she says, and there's something in me that really revels in clearing up a mess. She's brainy and highly educated, but also good at baking. One can't help feeling that Christy, who never got to have much formal education at all, and whose domestic life was far from conventional for her time, might be indulging in a bit of personal fantasy. Lucy is the ultimate competent woman. She tracks down murderers and feeds hungry schoolboys with equivalent aplomb. Best of all, she seems to enjoy herself. Indeed, this is what all of these characters have in common, along with their doughty personalities and their desire for adventure. After dozens of stories, there's never much sense that a recurring sleuth like Poirot or Marple gets much of a thrill from what they do. They more often act out of necessity or because they've been employed or because it feels like the moral thing to do. Lucy Islesborough, though, takes up detective work because it sounds like fun and proceeds to enjoy it to the full. And I think, secretly, we'd all quite like to do the same. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com where there are also transcripts of every episode. 
She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It, let it snow. That is also the discount code for the shop, by the way.